You're listening to a sermon preached at Cheo English Ministry in Sydney. We believe that God speaks through His Word, the Bible. We pray that as you listen, you will hear God's voice and be moved to worship His Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your Word, the Bible. We pray that you would speak to us now by your Spirit so that we can understand what your Word says. We pray that you would move in us by your Spirit so that we might put into practice what we learn. Father, we pray that you would help us uh, not to walk out of here as uh, just smarter sinners, but as people who are transformed into living lives that bring Jesus more honor. For we ask these things in his name. Amen. Uh, you may or may not know, but the church internet has had some problems. Uh, one of our MBN lines was damaged. Uh, so two weeks ago, a repair technician came out to church to repair our lines. And we got talking. He asked about me. He asked about the church. I told him a bit about what we believe as a church. And then at one point, uh, it seemed appropriate at the time, I asked him, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? And he said, yeah, I think so. He said, I'm a pretty good person. You know, like what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, that sort of stuff. I try and be good like it says there. Uh, a few years ago, I was preaching at a, a study camp for year 12 students, uh, HSE students from Tara and Kings. And at the end of the camp, all the parents came to the campsite to pick up their kids. And I got chatting with one of the dads that was there waiting to pick up his son. And I asked him, I said, are you a Christian? And he said to me, oh, my parents were Catholic. Uh, I never really go to church or anything like that. Um, I sent my kid to a Christian school. That's about it. And I said to him, that's interesting. What made you decide to send your son to a church school? And he said to me, I want him to have a good moral upbringing. You know, like the Sermon on the Mount. I want my son to grow up to be a good person. Have you ever heard people speak like that? about the Sermon on the Mount. It's like the golden rule, right? The Sermon on the Mount. For some people, they see the Sermon on the Mount, like that dad, as a nice moral code. Whether there's a God or not, it's a good way to live. I think more commonly though, uh, it's what that repairman here was saying. People assume that the Sermon on the Mount contains the kind of stuff that you need to do in order to be right with God. The Sermon on the Mount tells you what you have to do to get into heaven. And people, they do their best, and they hope that they've done enough to get in. Are they right? Is that what the Sermon on the Mount is all about? Is that the point of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, today, friends, I'm thrilled to look at this portion of the Sermon on the Mount together. Now, remember what we've seen so far in Matthew's gospel, in our studies through this gospel so far. Jesus has made an announcement. Do you remember? Remember what he said? He said, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And in response, he called on people to repent. Remember that? He said, people need to repent. They need to become changed women, changed men. People need to repent. That's what Jesus said. They need to change their allegiance. That's what Jesus was talking about. They need to stop running life their own way and to start living with God as king. Do you remember? That was Jesus' announcement. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And last week, we saw something of what that's going to mean for Jesus' disciples. It means 
that you're going to be noticeably different to the people around you. You're going to stand out. If you live for God's kingdom and not for this world, you will stand out just like salt in food, just like light in darkness. You'll stand out as different. Well, now in this next section, Jesus addresses the issue of God's Old Testament law. That's what we're looking at. Jesus addresses the issue of God's Old Testament law, the Torah. Question is this, what place does God's law have in the coming kingdom of heaven? That's the question. What place does God's law have in the coming of uh, God's kingdom? How should a repentant person think about God's law? And if you've ever tried to read through the whole Bible, you know that so much of it is law, especially early in the Old Testament. There's books and books on just law. Well, Jesus sets it all up for us with his very first statement. He says that he hasn't come to abolish God's Old Testament. That's the law and the prophets. He hasn't come to abolish the law. He hasn't come to set it aside as wrong. He hasn't put it aside as irrelevant or meaningless. No, no. What Jesus has come to do is fulfill it. That's what he says. He's come to bring God's law to its intended goal. That's what Jesus starts with. He says he has come to fulfill God's law. Look with me in your Bibles at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus came not to abolish, but to fulfill. And he goes on to say, you mustn't break God's commandments. They're God's commandments. You can't break them. Also, you can't teach other people to break God's commandments. If you do, he says, you'll be the least in the kingdom of heaven. In God's kingdom, God's law must be kept. Think about that. In God's kingdom, God's law must be kept. That makes sense, doesn't it? That sounds pretty logical and straightforward. In God's kingdom, God's law must be kept. In fact, Jesus says, you're not even going to get into God's kingdom unless you were better at keeping God's law than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Look with me at verse 19 and 20. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now you've got to press pause. What we've got to realize is this. These Pharisees, these teachers of the law that Jesus talks about, also known as scribes, these Pharisees and the scribes, they were probably the best at keeping God's law in the history of humanity. The Pharisees and the scribes, they were religious leaders in the time of Jesus. They devoted their whole lives to studying God's Old Testament law and keeping God's Old Testament law. Now, the fact is, nowadays, uh, when we think of the word Pharisees, we think bad guys, right? When we think Pharisees, we think, oh, legalistic, self-righteous, bad guys, religious people, we don't like them. Uh, nowadays, I think sadly, 
Now, the term Pharisee, it carries a somewhat negative connotation, but it's not that simple. It's not as simple as thinking, oh, Pharisees, bad guys. No, no. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were deeply committed to keeping God's law. That's what made them Pharisees and scribes. What Jesus says here, it's meant to shock us. What Jesus says, it's meant to shock you. So when Jesus says that in verse 20, we're meant to go, Lord, are you serious? What are you talking about, Jesus? These blokes, they are the righteous of the righteous. They are the righteous of the righteous. How can you say, Jesus, that I need to be even more righteous than them to get into God's kingdom? It's like saying, it's like saying, unless you're more Catholic than the Pope, you won't get into the kingdom of heaven. It's extreme. It's shocking. It makes no sense. Like, there's no way. I've got no chance. I've got zero chance of making it then. But just in case you're hearing what Jesus is saying, and just in case you think in your head, oh yeah, right here, I'll just try harder, I guess. I'll just pick up my game, pull myself up on my bootstraps. Oh, I guess I have to try harder now. Jesus goes on to explain what it's going to really mean to keep God's law. And what he does, he takes six examples from God's Old Testament law. Six examples, and he shows what's really going on with this law. What this law is actually on about. He shows what it's going to take to keep this law in the way that is more righteous than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, in the way that you're going to need to keep it if you want to get into God's kingdom, heaven. So, six examples. We start off with a command from the Old Testament, from the Ten Commandments, the commandment, do not murder. That's where he starts off. Do not murder. That's a pretty simple one, wouldn't you say? I mean, most of us here, I hope, we can just tick that box, right? I haven't killed anyone, so I'm clean. Well, not according to Jesus. Jesus says, what's this law really on about? Jesus says, it's actually not about the act of murder. So Jesus isn't saying, like, attempted murder is okay, as long as you don't actually kill them. He's not saying that uh, killing them to an inch of their life is okay. Jesus is not saying, as long as they still have a heartbeat, you're innocent. That's not what he's saying. No, no. Jesus says it's not just the act of murder that's forgiven. In fact, it's even wanting to murder someone in your heart. It's even murdering someone with your words. That's forbidden. Look with me at verse 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. It's not just your actions. It's your heart. It's your words. Jesus goes on to say, you want to really keep the do not murder command? Then go, fix up all your relationships, fix up all your friendships, get rid of the bitterness and the anger in your life, get rid of all enmity from your heart completely. Look at verse 23 to 26. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. 
do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary might hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. That's the first law, the first example of murder. Jesus now moves on, and he talks about the Old Testament law of adultery. Adultery, that's the second law. You reckon you can tick that box? My married friends in the room? Have you been faithful in your marriage? You haven't slept with anyone else apart from your spouse? Well, not so fast. Again, Jesus says, it's not just about your actions. It's about your heart as well. Look with me at verse 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Like, it's the classic youth group question, isn't it? How far can I go with my girlfriend before it's too far? Well, how far can I go before it's a sin? Well, Jesus says, that's not even the point at all. You've missed missed the point. According to Jesus, that's not the right direction of your thinking. Even looking at a woman lustfully is adultery with her in your heart. And then Jesus goes on to use some very graphic imagery to talk about how you and I need to avoid sin, how we need to fight sin. He says, whatever is causing us to sin, you have to be radical in getting rid of it. Whatever causes you to sin, it's not worth it. That's his point. It's not worth it. Whatever it is, it's not worth hell. It's not worth missing out on God's kingdom. If what you look at makes you commit adultery in your heart or anywhere else, then stop looking. Stop the means of looking. If what you do with your hand, with your actions physically, if that makes you commit adultery, stop doing it. Stop it by whatever means. Look with me at verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Murder, adultery. Next, Jesus is going to talk about divorce. He goes and talk about divorce. In those days, just like today, divorce was very, very common. Uh, many of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were themselves divorced, actually. But the thing about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the way that they read God's law, they thought they were justified in their divorces. They thought they were righteous in their divorces. They thought as long as they followed the right procedure, then you can divorce in a way that's pleasing to God. That's what they thought. Jesus says, you're wrong. He says, if you divorce your wife, you're effectively forcing her into adultery not to mention the bloke who marries her. Now, uh, notice a couple of assumptions in what Jesus says here. Firstly, only men could divorce in those days. It was only a question for men. And the assumption is that a divorced wife has to remarry. In those days, she did have to remarry. Uh, There was no Centrelink in those days, as you can imagine. There wasn't any single parent pension or dole or anything like that. It was either, as a woman, it's either you remarry or starve to death. If you divorce your wife, Jesus says, You're forcing her into adultery. 
unless she's already committed adultery. That doesn't make the divorce right. You weren't all justified and godly and righteous because you followed the right procedures. No, no, but at least you haven't made her the adulteress. She's done that to herself. Now, friends, we're going to think more about this when we get to chapter 19, but for now, we just need to get Jesus' point. We just need to get Jesus' big point. There's no such thing as a finding God's law divorce. That's his point. You're not just going to justify yourself before God by divorcing in some godly way, by following some correct procedure that makes it okay. Look with me at verse 31 and 32. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Murder, adultery, divorce. Next, we move on to the law about oaths. Oaths, promises, contracts. Again, it seems easy enough, doesn't it? Don't break your oath. Can you tick that box? Jesus says, not so fast. He says, this whole oath thing, you only need it if you're a liar. You only need it if people can't trust you. That's why you make an oath. Jesus says, forget about oaths, just tell the truth. That's what he says. Just keep your promises. Let your yes be yes. Look with me at verse 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is a city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. I remember uh, when I was studying this passage for the first time properly uh, back in 2008, uh, one of my uh, best friends was actually becoming a lawyer and he had to take an oath, right? You have to take an oath at the Supreme Court to be admitted as a solicitor. So based on my convictions of this passage, I full tried to urge him not to take an oath. I was like, brother, don't do it, man. You know, Matthew 5, don't take an oath. I tried to urge him, just join the other atheists and uh, take an affirmation or something, right? You don't have to take an oath, you know, don't, don't take, like, take an affirmation. That's, that's what I said to him. Um, and then a few days later, I was reading what the great John Calvin said about this passage in his commentary. And John Calvin shows that it's not the form of taking an oath that's the problem. God's Old Testament actually demands that you take an oath in certain circumstances. Jesus isn't forbidding that. What Jesus is talking about is, you haven't justified yourself if you've managed to just keep your oaths. If you want to be justified on oath keeping, then it's much more than keeping your oath. It's actually about telling the truth. It's about keeping your promises. It's about being sincere and genuine, having integrity. And so John Calvin wrote in his usual sweet way, he said that those people who think they should never swear in court or anywhere show, and I quote, both their passion for dispute and their total lack of intelligence. And that's me. Now, John Calvin, you got me. This guy gets me from the grave. Uh, but it's not as easy as it seems, right? It's not as easy as it seems. You want to justify yourself by keeping God's law or oaths? Then Jesus says, you've got to always tell the truth, no matter what it costs. You have to always keep your promises. All right. Murder, adultery, divorce, oaths. The next law that he takes an example of is 
a legal principle from the Old Testament. This is a law for judges. When a judge gives a penalty, it was meant to be in proportion to the crime. That's what this next law is on about. So, for example, if someone knocked out someone's eye, then you don't give the judgment that two of their eyes got to be taken out or something like that. You have to set a punishment that befits the crime. An eye for an eye. That's the idea. Well, Jesus picks up this principle and he says, in personal relationships, it doesn't apply. You can't justify yourself, as some children do, by saying, I only did to them what they did to me. That's what he says. Or maybe you've heard this one before, I just got my own back. You know, Jesus says no. He says you can't do that, you can't justify yourself. Jesus says, you really want to keep God's law? You really want to be a godly person? You really want to be a ready-to-go-in-God's-kingdom kind of person? If you want to be justified on this issue, then don't demand paybacks at all. In fact, if someone wants to take something from you, you give them even more than what they want. You turn the famous other cheek. You go the famous extra mile. Look with me at verse 38 to 42. Verse 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. All right, the final law, the final law. The final law that Jesus deals with is about loving your neighbor. God's word commands that people love their neighbor. That's the commandment. But of course, people who want to justify themselves, if my guess is that's everyone, they love asking the question, right? Who is my neighbor? Why do people ask that? They ask that to try and figure out who they don't have to love so they can make it as narrow as possible. That's how we ask that in our hearts. Who is my neighbor, God, that I have to love because I love them? And then what sinful people like you and me do is having worked that out, preferably as narrow and specific as possible, they add their own bit to God's word, a bit that's not there in the Old Testament, and they add this bit. Well, if a person isn't my neighbor, then I don't have to love them. In fact, I'm allowed to hate them. Now, we don't say that, but we live that. Jesus says, hold up, not so. Jesus says, there is no limit to who your neighbor is. There is no limit to who your neighbor is. It's the same thing that he says in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He says, everyone is your neighbor, even your enemies. Jesus says, you want to justify yourself on this? You want to keep God's law on this? Jesus says, then be like God. Love everyone as your neighbor. Look at verse 43 to 47. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? And now Jesus finishes this section by showing what the true standard is. What's the standard of heaven? What standard do you need to keep in order to get into God's kingdom? 
What does it mean to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribes? How much of God's Old Testament law do you have to obey in order to be justified? What's the standard? Answer, perfection. Perfection. God is perfect, and that's what he demands in his kingdom. Perfection. Look with me at verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, friends, can you see what's here? Can you see what Jesus has done? He's talked about the Old Testament law. He's given six examples. First, he says he hasn't come to abolish it. He hasn't canceled it. He's not setting it aside. No, no. He said he's come to fulfill it. And then he says, you want to get into God's kingdom? Then you've got to keep God's law. In fact, you've got to keep it even better than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And then using six examples, Jesus shows what he means. He shows what it's going to take. He shows what it's going to take to truly Obey God's law. Murder, adultery is not just about your actions, it's about your heart. Divorce, he says, there's no godly way about that. Oaths, you should always tell the truth and you should always keep your promises. Let your yes be yes. Eye for an eye. You shouldn't be trying to get revenge at all. Love your neighbor. That means everyone, even your worst enemy. What place does God's law have in God's kingdom? In God's kingdom, God's people keep God's law perfectly from their hearts. So church, you want to get in? There's your standard. Go for it. Knock yourself out. Application. Friends, let's work hard And let's think about applying this passage to ourselves. By way of application, I have four things to say. There are four things I need to say. Firstly, I look at what Jesus says here, and it sounds good to me, to be honest. This is who I want to be. Like, it sounds good. I don't want to be the kind of man who doesn't actually murder people. I want to be the kind of man who doesn't even want to hate people. I want to be the kind of man who isn't just physically faithful to my wife. No, I want to be the kind of man who's faithful from my heart. I look at God's law, and to be honest with you, it looks good to me. It looks really good. I want to be the kind of man who stays married. I want to be the kind of man who always tells the truth, who always keeps my promises, who doesn't need to make any oaths. I want to be the kind of man who doesn't seek revenge. I want to be the kind of man who genuinely loves other people from my heart, from a love that's overflowing out of me. I I want to be this righteous kind of man. I don't want to be the kind of pinched, make the bar as low as possible kind of guy. I don't want to be the kind of guy that's outwardly obeying, but not really from the heart. I don't want to be the kind of guy that's win the brownie points and see if I can get in. No, I... I want to be this person. I want to be inwardly righteous. I want to be genuinely this person, this good person. What Jesus says here, it's right. It makes sense to me. It's right. It is good. Those people who reckon the Sermon on the Mount is a nice moral code, I think they're onto something. It's a beautiful moral code. If you read it, 
It's a beautiful moral code, isn't it? And I can see that this is genuine godliness. You can't argue with that. This is what God really wants from us. That makes so much sense. It's consistent with his character. I can see that God is right in wanting this from his people. I think God's kingdom, where everyone's gonna be like this, I think that place is gonna be awesome. I think it's gonna be fantastic. This is who I want to be. That's the first thing I gotta say. This is who I want to be. The second thing I need to say is this. This is not who I am. I don't live up to this standard. Not even close, not even close. I read what Jesus says here, and I don't feel justified. I don't feel like I've ticked all the boxes, not even half the boxes, not even one box. No way. When I read the Sermon on the Mount, what I see here, when I read this, what this does in my heart, it proves to me how pathetic I am. It it proves to me how hopeless I really am. And I can hide it from a lot of people. But when when I read the... What's going on here in Matthew 5, like it proves to me just how weak, pathetic, and sinful, and hopeless I am. I read this, right? And this shows what a hateful, lustful, unfaithful, dishonest, vengeful, loveless person I really am. I read Jesus' standard here, and I know that I'm not okay. I don't get a pass on this. I don't even keep God's law as well as the Pharisees and the scribes, let alone Jesus' standard here. So on the basis of my obedience, I will, verse 20, certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Those people who think that the Sermon on the Mount contains what you need to get into heaven They're absolutely right. They're absolutely correct. It's not that the standard is high. The standard is perfection. But there's a big problem, isn't there? It's not a multiple choice test and the pass mark isn't 50. Jesus makes it clear, God demands perfection. So church, let me ask you, what do you think? When you examine your own life, do you think you should probably get into heaven? because you've done enough good stuff, you've been kind to your family, you've given to charity once? Have you tried your best at living by the Sermon on the Mount so you think maybe God should let you in? Well, friends, when you actually read the Sermon on the Mount, you realize, I have no chance. The only people who could think that they have lived by the Sermon on the Mount are people who've never read the thing. They're straight facts. They've never read it. Because when you read it, you realize that for people like us, actually for everyone breathing ever, this is impossible. It's simply impossible. And friends, is that not the exact point that Jesus is making? Is that not Jesus' point? We cannot get into God's kingdom by obeying God's law. We're not good enough. We can't do it. It's simply impossible. Four things to say by way of application. Firstly, This is who I want to be. Secondly, this is not who I am. And that brings me to my third point. Jesus didn't come to abolish God's law, but he did come to fulfill it. Jesus has accomplished the fulfillment of God's law. In other words, he's brought God's law to its goal. And how did he do it? 
Well, we're going to have to read the rest of the gospel and the rest of the New Testament to find out. But firstly, he did it by keeping God's law himself perfectly. Jesus is the one person in history who was perfect as his heavenly father is perfect. Jesus is the one person in history who didn't murder or commit adultery or divorce in his heart, action or words. Jesus is the one person who always told the truth, who always kept his promises, who never exacted revenge. Jesus is the one person who actually did turn the other cheek. Jesus is the only person in history who loved us fully even when we were his enemies. Not just in his life, Jesus didn't just obey God his Father in his life, Jesus died on the cross and rose again from being a sacrifice for our sin, the sacrifice that God's law demanded for all the ways that we fail to keep God's law. Jesus has fulfilled God's law and now, by his life, death, and resurrection, he has opened up God's kingdom to lawbreakers like you and me. He has made a way. Jesus has fulfilled God's law. He has opened up God's kingdom to lawbreakers like you and me. And so to my fourth and final point, what do we do about Jesus' teaching here? What do we do? How should we respond to the Sermon on the Mount? Answer, we've got to rely on Jesus. We've got to rely on Jesus. The appropriate response to the Sermon on the Mount is we got to rely on Jesus. We can't obey our way into heaven. We need to ask Jesus to bring us into heaven. Look with me on the screen. Is that what Paul says to the church in Rome? Romans chapter three, this is what Paul says. He says, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for us today, isn't it? He's shown us He's shown us our sin from God's law. Through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Verse 21, but now, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. It's fulfilling the Old Testament. It's fulfilling God's law. Verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Anyone and everyone, anyone and everyone, if you believe in Jesus by faith, God gives you this righteousness. You want to be righteous before God? You want to get into heaven? Then you must, 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 must put your trust in Jesus. We will not get there by our obedience to the law or by obedience to some church tradition or whatever, but we need to trust in Jesus. That's the only way we're going to get in, friends. But, but, having said that, God's law is good. God's law is good. Just like Jesus said, he didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. And now that the law is fulfilled through Jesus, it still has value. We don't rip out the Torah from the Bible because we don't need it anymore. The law, it still has value. Not that we're under it anymore. Not that we can be justified by it anymore. But as people who are already justified by the blood of Christ, God's law can help us. God's law can help us. It teaches us the kinds of things that God wants. It shows us how we will live in God's eternal kingdom. And so as we look at Matthew chapter 5, it should 
It should inspire us. It should inspire us, not just to a a ticker box kind of obedience, not to a kind of a, I hope I've done enough obedience, or not to a kind of, I hope I've got enough brownie points with God obedience. No, no. It drives us, it inspires us to a heartfelt, genuine obedience, a no ends to it kind of obedience, an obedience that's fueled by joy and gratitude. As we read the Sermon on the Mount, it should inspire us to want to be the kind of people who don't just not murder, but people that don't even want to hate on someone, who don't even want to commit adultery. This picture that we see in Matthew 5, it should inspire us to be the kinds of people who stick at marriage no matter how hard it gets. People who who tell the truth, who keep our promises, who let our yes be yes. The kind of people who don't seek revenge, who actually love people. Even the ones that are our enemies, we should love them. As people justified by the grace of God through Christ alone, here is a picture of who we should long to be, who we should yearn to be. People who have this genuine love for God and for all people. It's a, it's a beautiful picture, right? It's an inspirational picture. Not that we can achieve it on this side of eternity, but here is something that as Christians we can aspire to. Well, church, the Sermon on the Mount, it is a nice moral code. It does tell us how to get into heaven. But it's not what most people think, is it? Friends, the Sermon on the Mount, it shows us that we need Jesus. So, church, let's put our trust in him. And in response to his mercy, let's set ourselves to live this life of genuine love and godliness. May God glorify Jesus through our lives as we gratefully seek to obey the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we acknowledge that we have nothing to boast about. Our Father, we confess that we fall far short of our obedience to your law. We are people who are full of resentment and hatred and lust and dishonesty and faithlessness and revenge and bitterness and lovelessness. Father, we are people who are utterly unable, absolutely unworthy to be welcomed in your kingdom. But Lord, we thank you so much for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you so much for who he is and what he has done. Father, we thank you that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, keeping your law perfectly. We thank you that he died the death that we deserve to die under the judgment of your law. And Father, we thank you for him who has now opened the kingdom of heaven to all who put their trust in Jesus. Father, we pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit to trust in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would enable us, that you would empower us to set ourselves to live this kind of salty, luminous life. Father, please help us 
to rely on Jesus and out of a grateful heart to strive to live in accordance with the Sermon on the Mount. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.